Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And if it's your first time here, we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. In this episode, we're focusing on Yalta. It's gone down in history as the place where the big three met. Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin. They were here to discuss the fate of Europe. Now, it wasn't easy to get there, especially for Roosevelt. They had to travel over thousands of miles. It was perilous. Over sea, over land, over air, dodging mines, dodging enemy flak, and even the odd U-boat on the way. It makes it even more astonishing, therefore, that Roosevelt and Churchill, along with Avril Harriman, the US ambassador to the Soviet Union, took their daughters with them. These were Kathleen Harriman, Sarah Churchill, and Anne Roosevelt. To talk us through why they were there and what they saw, we're joined by the fantastic Catherine Grace Katz. Now, Catherine is the author of a new book, the daughters of Yalta, and she's been through the historic writings, the personal interviews, the hidden archives, and the private diaries of these daughter diplomats to provide us with a whole new glimpse behind the scenes at Yalta. It's amazing, she's amazing, you're going to love it, enjoy. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for coming on The World Wars. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. And we can tell the listeners that at point of recording, we're both waiting patiently for President Biden to take to the stand and give his inaugural address. Are you going to have a party? (laughs) A mini party with just my family where the extent of the celebration is wearing sweaters with American flags on them, or jumpers rather. Jumpers. Don't worry, we've got American listeners and Canadian listeners and listeners all around the world. You can say sweaters, that's fine. We won't hold it against you. (laughs) Well, let's jump into the topic of today. And this is Yalta. Because when we think of Yalta, we think of that cold winter of February 1945 and the meeting of the big three, Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin. But you're a world expert on Yalta. So, Tell us more. What was the point in these world leaders meeting at this freezing cold holiday resort on the coast of Crimea? 
Well, as the war is moving into the early days of 1945, it looks like the fighting in Europe will come to an end sometime in the spring or early summer. And the Battle of the Bulge is about to end right as they set off for Yalta. The Pacific War is not quite as advanced. Iwo Jima has not yet occurred. They don't know if the Manhattan Project will be a success. But it's looking like there will be peace in Europe sometime soon. And so the big three decide that it's imperative that they meet together to iron out some of the details of what will happen in the immediate aftermath of the war. Things like what to do about Germany. Should Germany be allowed to remain one nation or should it be broken up into smaller states in hopes that it can't rise up in belligerence once again? Also, what to do about Poland and securing Polish sovereignty. Britain went to war to guarantee Polish sovereignty at the outset. Churchill has been with the Polish government in exile in London since the beginning of the war. He really wants to make sure that that which they went to secure is truly secured at the end. Stalin, however, has other ideas. He is very keen to have friendly neighbors on his borders. Dating back to the Tsarist era, Poland has been a weak point for the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire before, where they've been invaded through the Polish flatlands dating back to the time of Napoleon. He wants to make sure that doesn't happen again. And with the Red Army to back him up, he is determined to make sure that the government in Poland is going to be friendly to the interests in Moscow when it's all over. The war in the Pacific, they certainly have objectives there, even though it's not quite as far along. And this is really where Franklin Roosevelt's attention is. His priority is saving as many American lives as possible, and they don't yet know if the Manhattan Project and the atomic bomb will be an option, and so he's looking at a potential ground invasion of the Japanese home islands, which could lead to the deaths of 200,000 American soldiers. Roosevelt wants to avoid this, and so he is looking at potentially bringing the Soviet Union into the war in the Pacific. The Soviets and the Japanese have had a pact of neutrality since the beginning of the war, but Roosevelt believes that the Soviets will be induced to join the war in exchange for territorial concessions. And finally, Roosevelt also has a very personal goal where he wants to succeed where Woodrow Wilson failed at the end of World War I. And he wants to also make sure that this alliance that they have fostered, united by the need to defeat a common enemy, that doesn't disappear when the war ends, that the Soviets will remain engaged as part of the international system. And he believes that the best way to do this once the common enemy is vanquished is through the creation of an international peace organization. And it's imperative that the Soviets buy into this otherwise he fears that it won't be a success. And while eternal peace in Europe is not really <laughs> realistic in Roosevelt's opinion, he does believe that peace for at least 50 years is achievable. And so these are some of the elements that he is determined to come to agreements with, with his allies at this point in the war as they're looking forward towards an eventual end to the fighting. Okay, you've convinced me. The meeting seems like it was pretty important. And I suppose <laughs> you can't meet on Zoom at this point, like we're all doing in our everyday lives. And you don't want there to be any miscommunication between any envoys you send. This is where the three top dogs have to meet, and it has to be thrashed out between them, the great minds of the war. But these aren't young guys. These are older gents. So how easy was it to get to Yalta in that winter? It's incredibly challenging to get to Yalta, not least because of where it is situated geographically, but also just what it took to get there, given all of the challenges in the middle of a war. And I think that the journey there and how challenging it was is something that people have underappreciated in looking at the Yalta conference and also just as to how the sense of place affected what transpired. Stalin refuses to meet outside of Soviet borders. He is very concerned about leaving his security apparatus behind he also is afraid of flying. 
And so he tells his allies that it's because his doctors say it's bad for his health that he can't travel abroad. So if they want to meet, they have to come to him. And he also recognizes that at this point in the war, he holds more cards than do Churchill and Roosevelt. So if they want to meet with him, they're going to have to come to him. Churchill and Roosevelt agree. This just shows how determined they are to have this meeting in person and the real importance of in-person diplomacy, which I think is something important to think about, especially now as we're conducting so much business on Zoom. But Churchill and Roosevelt agree to make this arduous journey. Churchill flies from London first to Malta, where he'll rendezvous with Roosevelt. And very tragically on the way, one of the British planes carrying foreign office experts goes down off the coast of Italy. So the Brits start this conference with this real tragedy hanging over them. It's quite an ominous sign. Roosevelt similarly has to make a long journey, which he does by ship across the Atlantic Ocean, which is still filled with enemy U-boats. He travels in a destroyer convoy, which is about as safe as they can make it. They're still sighting U-boats as they go. They rendezvous at Malta, and that has led to the apocryphal Stalin quip, I said Yalta, not Malta. (laughs) And then from there, they have to fly a further 1,400 miles over enemy-occupied territory where there are still anti-aircraft units that are shooting at the planes as they're going along. These are unpressurized planes flying at low altitudes, so extremely dangerous. And then they finally arrive in the Crimea where they land at Saki Airfield, which is not an appropriate (laughs) airfield for the kinds of planes that they fly. The runway is much too short. It's very dangerous, very foggy, but they do it. They land. Then they have to drive a further six hours over battle-scarred roads, sometimes at no more than 20 miles an hour, across this very dramatic Crimean scenery until they finally descend from the mountains to Yalta and the Black Sea coast, which is really elegant and beautiful. But this kind of facade of beauty and elegance left over from the Tsarist era is really just masking the destruction and devastation that has been wrought by the Nazis and the Soviets before them in the years prior to the Yalta Conference. So when you think of the grand summits that take place today, where every detail of security is overseen months in advance, and you just can't imagine anyone today, any world leader, agreeing to undertake the kind of journey that they agreed to undertake during the war, where there was real risk to each of their lives on a daily basis as they made their way to this conference. That's fascinating. And you're right, it's an aspect of the history that's been completely overlooked. That is one hell of an arduous journey, and it is far from a package holiday. And Roosevelt's not particularly well at this point. You know, it isn't long before he parts this earth. Does this journey have an impact on his health? Well, the irony of it is that Stalin says that he can't leave the Soviet Union because his doctors advise him against it. Meanwhile, Roosevelt is actually dying of congestive heart failure, and he agrees to go. Roosevelt, he's never actually asked his doctor what's wrong with him, which is really quite fascinating. Cardiology was a newer field in medicine at the time. And so that, you know, they do know that he has congestive heart failure, but there really aren't ways to cure him. They really only mitigate the symptoms. And so they can do things like change his diet, try to encourage him to rest more, which is very difficult for a wartime president. But he has managed to hang in there. However, he clearly knows that something is wrong with him, even if he's not explicitly asking. And you can see this because he decides to bring his daughter to Yalta with him really as his protector and supporter. And he has a sense that she is doing something to protect him and that he really can't get along without her at this point in the war. His daughter, Anna, was the oldest of his five children and his only daughter. And she had tried to raise her hand to come along to these conferences earlier. He'd always kind of rebuffed her requests and instead had chosen to bring her brothers who could be assistance to him and also more physically helping him stand, move around because he was paralyzed. But his daughter has been living with him in the White House since Christmas of 1943. 
And he cables Winston Churchill in early 1945 once they agree that Yalta will be the place where they meet. And he says, if you're thinking of bringing your daughter, Sarah, to this conference, who Winston Churchill had brought to the Tehran conference in 1943, I'm thinking of bringing my daughter, Anna, this time. So you can see this change in behavior clearly indicates that he's very concerned about something and knows that he needs a different team around him at this conference to be able to get through. On the one hand, this journey across the ocean is a bit of a rest for Roosevelt. He is not inundated with the kinds of messages and meetings that he would be in the White House. So it is somewhat relaxing. And he really does try to do things like work on his stamp collection and sleep and enjoy you know, sitting in the sunshine on the deck, even though it's chilly. But as soon as he arrives, all that solitude and restful <laughs> time is really gone. So he's trying to store up as much as possible on the way, which is something that his daughter is very keen for him to do. How many people knew about Roosevelt's condition at this time? Was this a close circle and a family secret? It was. Only the doctors and Franklin Roosevelt's daughter, Anna, and Anna's husband really knew how ill he was. The doctors had been sworn to secrecy. They broke the rules by telling Anna, but they needed someone within the family to be their ally to really encourage Roosevelt to do the things that they were advising to make him behave so he wouldn't get sicker. And Anna's the person that they confide in, and then Anna similarly confides in her husband. But otherwise, no one really knows. Eleanor Roosevelt really can't quite bring herself to see that something about him has changed. She doesn't want to see it. But the Soviets have heard some rumors that Roosevelt is sick. No one's quite sure what. Churchill's doctor has also heard rumors. The Soviets go so far as to send doctors to the airfield where they arrive in Saki to spy on Roosevelt from afar to see if they can diagnose anything from a distance and report back to Stalin to see if Roosevelt really is ill or if these rumors are unfounded. The good old Soviets, they always have a spy in there somewhere, always watching. Always. Now, Sarah and Anna weren't the only daughters at Yalta, is that right? Correct. Sarah Churchill was the first of the daughters to make a journey to one of these conferences. She had been chosen by her father to come to the Tehran Conference at the end of 1943, which was the first meeting of the Big Three. And Sarah Churchill was a perfect choice for her father in several ways. First, she was a member of the women's branch of the Royal Air Force. She was a photographic reconnaissance intelligence analyst. And so she was very attuned to the actual developments of the war. She covered things like Operation Torch in the Mediterranean. And so she had that technical knowledge. She understood chains of command. She was also an actress before the war, and so so much of diplomacy is really acting and performance, and so this is something that lent itself extremely well to this kind of environment. And she was also a beautiful writer, and she was able to record things taking place around the conference, you know, not in the meetings themselves, but aspects of it that would be really valuable to her father as he wrote his wartime memoirs later. So she was the first of the daughters to go, but she wasn't the only daughter who was in the mix because Avril Harriman, who is the American ambassador to the Soviet Union, also relied on his daughter. And he had encouraged his daughter to come with him to London early in the war when he became the Lend-Lease envoy prior to American entry into the war. And he thought that it would be a great opportunity for his 24-year-old daughter to come with him in the middle of the Blitz to come work in London as a war reporter, have a bit of an adventure. So she was with him throughout his time in London. And then when he became the ambassador to the Soviet Union in 1943, she joined him, learned Russian for both of them. He really wouldn't have time to learn Russian, so she took it upon herself to do it. And she really became his assistant ambassador in many ways. She had more access to and exposure to Stalin's inner circle than any other American woman in history, which is quite remarkable. 
She's someone that all three delegations are very familiar with. As an American, she knows the British leadership. She also knows the Russian leadership. And so she is the perfect person to accompany her father in a way that is almost kind of like what we think of a protocol officer at the State Department today, helping to oversee the logistics as a liaison between the Soviets and the Americans. See, this is remarkable because there's been lots of controversy around unelected family members maybe getting a little too involved in business and politics during the Trump administration. And of course, I'm talking about Ivanka. Was there any whispers, any controversy around the diplomats that were heading over to Yalta? Was there anyone who disagreed with them being there? Not in the sense that we think of it today, because I think there's a very clear difference between the type of involvement that the daughters had at Yalta and the type of involvement you've seen from Ivanka Trump the last four years. The daughters who attended the Yalta conference were not in any of the meetings with Stalin, the plenary sessions where the negotiations are taking place. They don't have the security clearance to do that. They don't have the expertise in foreign policy. So that's not something that they are seeking out, not something that anyone suggests that they should be involved in. They're very capable and very bright, but also very young. Kathleen Harriman was 27. Sarah Churchill was 30 and Anna Roosevelt was 38. But that's not to say that they were devoid of power and they had great influence over their fathers and were very valuable in ways that kind of extend beyond the conference sessions themselves. But there is some acceptance in American politics that the family will have some role in the public duties of the elected official. It's kind of like that you know, old saying, if you marry someone, you marry their family. If you elect someone, to some extent, you elect their family. And we have all agreed that there should be some role for the first spouse in an administration. And historically, we have accepted some role of involvement of first children, too. I think dating back to the administration of John Quincy Adams, you've seen first sons act as a principal private secretary to their fathers. But this is really a more kind of logistical role. This is not a policymaking role. And so the real change that we've seen in the last four years is someone like Ivanka Trump being involved in policy, attending the G20, having these meetings herself, her husband, Jared Kushner, also being extremely involved in policy. And so I think this is a part of a conversation that we should have where we haven't had to have recently because there have only been very young children in the White House in the last few administrations. And so we haven't had to grapple with this question for quite some time. Now we do. And of course, there are some first children who might be great experts in policy where you'd like to have them involved, but not all first children will be in that position. So I think that we should discuss what the appropriate role is for the unelected family to have going forward. But I think, again, that the things that Ivanka Trump was doing is very, very different from what the daughters at Yalta were doing. So were they daughter diplomats at Yalta? And if so, what impact did they have, whether it be implicit or explicit? Yes. Daughter diplomats is a perfect way to put it. They were there as, I like to think of it as quasi-official members of the delegations, where they're not acting in the same capacity as a State Department advisor or a foreign office advisor, where they're actually making policy decisions, but they're in this kind of betwixt and between role where they can go places and have subtle, nuanced conversations delivering important messages where they're not speaking necessarily with the weight of their government behind them, but speaking with the weight of their fathers behind them. And so they're able to flow between people, have casual conversations where you can make important statements and collect information and bring it back to their fathers. The other thing that they're able to do is go out into the local community and meet some of the people whose future is being reordered by the conference itself. And they're able to see some of what the war has left behind for these people 
and report back to their fathers about what they've seen. And this is something that affects Winston Churchill in particular. And it really just kind of brings the human element of what the end of the war will mean to what one thinks of as this lofty, impersonal geopolitical summit. How does it impact Churchill particularly? What do they find out from Yalta? So the daughters are able to make a couple of excursions into the local area. They go into the town of Yalta itself and also to the port city of Sevastopol. And this city has been completely destroyed by the fighting. But this is one of these places in the world where they're at the crossroads between empires and it continually is in the middle of these battles between sparring enemies. So Sevastopol was destroyed long before. I mean, they're just a few miles away from where the Charge of the Light Brigade took place during the Crimean War. And so they go out into the community and they see just how the scars of war have impacted the local people. There's just nothing left. And yet there's so much hope amongst the local population that they will continue to rebuild. And they, even though their lives have been destroyed by the war and also by the Soviets' actions in the Crimea before the war, there's a sense that they will go on. And even though there are these emerging tensions between the Western powers and the Soviet Union, the daughters, and especially Sarah Churchill, really recognize a difference between the Soviet people and the Soviet leadership. And even though there are going to be these tensions in the near future with the Soviet leadership, there's a sense of optimism that local people everywhere in the world all have the same hopes and dreams, and that there is reason to be hopeful, even in the midst of great concern about the near future. Well, I've got to ask a question of personal indulgence here. What do they think of Stalin? Because this is one hell of a new world for them. He is quite the character. Did we get any insights from them, any gossip from them on what Stalin was like? Yes, we do. And there's this kind of duality of observations about Stalin. And this is true of the daughters, as well as some of the other new world leaders, including Winston Churchill, where there's a sense of the jocular Uncle Joe figure, where he is somewhat charming and eccentric, but then there's also this very terrifying and fearsome Stalin, and it's almost challenging to reconcile the two. And there are these great observations from Kathleen Harriman, who has a very close dialogue with her father, who has been the ambassador since 1943. And so he has been having routine nightly meetings with Vyacheslav Molotov, the foreign minister, and with Stalin. And he reports back to Kathleen that in a meeting where Stalin likes what's happening, he feels like he's getting his way, he likes to doodle on his paper and he'll make kind of innocuous little doodles in the margins. But if things are not going his way or he's really becoming you know, more aggressive in his negotiations, his doodles will take on a more menacing aspect where he'll start doodling things like wolves. And this is something that Kathleen writes about in her letter to her best friend, Pamela Churchill, Winston Churchill's daughter-in-law, who's back home in London. And so it's kind of a, you know, a little microcosm of these impressions that they have about Stalin. Sarah Churchill, similarly, when she meets Stalin in this environment, she met him first in 1943, and now she's meeting him again. She remarks on the innocuous aspects of his external self, his presence, where he's very short, he has pockmarked skin, bad teeth, a shriveled arm, so he just doesn't seem like a fearsome creature. But then when you look into his eyes, she describes it as cold, hard water, where he is this very gracious host, very charming and welcoming and somewhat eccentric, but you can really see if eyes are the window to the soul what his soul is reflecting. And this is one of these moments where the beautiful writing her ability with language, which is very much like her father, really comes through in her writing and she makes these wonderful observations. Really, I think like almost the conscience of the conference, where she is able to really see a person for who they are 
in this world. And I think her remarks about Stalin are some of the most interesting of all of those that the daughters wrote about during their experience there. They're certainly some of the most interesting I've heard about Stalin. And the idea that he scribbles walls as he gets angrier is a, a little terrifying. And I think that some sort of psychologist should desperately take a look at that quickly because um, it's probably not <laughs> a good sign, is it? But let's go back to the formalities of the conference itself. What was it that was concluded here? What did they decide? Yes. So this is a moment where they are trying to make the outcome sound more positive than it is. In Germany, they generally agree that Germany should not be broken up, that it should remain one country, that France should have some role in administering the post-war German transition. They should be brought to the table. They haven't been invited to the conference, but they should be part of the peace process in Germany. The other thing that is very challenging, of course, is the issue of Poland and Polish sovereignty, because there's really very little that Churchill can achieve with Stalin's army having boots on the ground across Poland and Eastern Europe. He wants to guarantee free elections. They're trying to create a mechanism to have observers to make sure that the elections are, in fact, free and unfettered. But they kind of are at the mercy of Stalin keeping his word. And if he chooses not to, there's not much they can do about it, which is very frustrating, especially because Churchill feels that Roosevelt doesn't understand the gravity of the situation in Poland and that if FDR is not willing to push back against Stalin and you know is more willing to take him at his word, that Stalin will push the envelope further than he should. So this is very concerning. And so Churchill can kind of see the writing on the wall in Poland before they leave, even though he returns home and tries to signal to his colleagues in parliament and publicly in the press that this is his great victory. But he privately harbors very deep concerns, which he shares with his daughter as they're leaving the conference. In the Pacific, Roosevelt has made an agreement with Stalin to enter the war three months after the war in Europe is over in exchange for these territorial concessions, which involves China also having a part in this, but they have not yet consulted the Chinese. Similarly, in Poland, they did not consult the Poles. The Poles were not invited to the conference. Stalin claims he attempted to get in touch with them to bring them, but he called them and nobody answered and he didn't have their addresses, so they're not coming, which clearly is not on the up and up. But Roosevelt does feel that the conference as a whole has been a victory because he has been able to hear Soviet participation in the United Nations or what becomes the United Nations. The Soviets have come into the conference saying that they want to have a seat for every Soviet republic. They finally agree, oh no, we'll only take three seats, which seems like this magnanimous gesture where they have given in, but it's trading things that they don't actually really care about so that they can get the things that they do care about, namely in Poland. So they leave the conference where everybody you know, is signaling the sense of optimism, which is not shared privately by everyone. Yes, and of course, Churchill definitely doesn't get everything he wants. And it's 75 years ago this year that you've got Churchill's Iron Curtain speech as well. So things play out maybe slightly differently than they all wanted in the first place. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. got to ask one other thing because as we're recording this we're coming up to holocaust memorial day so how about the holocaust was this discussed between the leaders at yalta surprisingly no this was not one of the items that was on the agenda and you look back and it's somewhat alarming and concerning that it wasn't perhaps there is something to be said for they didn't know the true extent of it at the time it was really only in the summer of 44 that the soviets found the first concentration camp However, everybody had been receiving intelligence that something terrible was going on, that the Germans were leading this horrible extermination effort. And so it is very concerning that this wasn't a bigger issue, even if they didn't know the true extent of the Holocaust. However, the one moment that it does come up is in a more casual conversation between the big three as they're having one of the last dinners at this conference. And it's just a more private dinner rather than a grand state affair like some of the others. And Roosevelt, when he's leaving the conference, he is on his way to meet with Middle Eastern leaders and discuss potentially creating a Jewish homeland in the Middle East. However, the true discussion around the whole situation is not raised, except FDR makes a very callous and off-color joke involving the KKK and Jews and just is is somewhat a product of his time, but it's very alarming to think about in light of what we know is happening historically. And so it is one of these kind of very grating aspects of looking back on history and everybody is flawed and everybody should be seen through the lens of nuance, but you really see the underappreciation for what the true extent of the crimes were, and that it should have been a bigger part of the conversation at Yalta. Now, 
I know you've been inspired in your work by some of the big thinkers in history and those who work on applying history to contemporary policy. Some of the people we've had on this podcast as well, like Neil Ferguson. So tell us, what can we learn about foreign policy towards Russia from Yalta? And can we apply this to policy today, especially, as I mentioned at the beginning, as we have the start of a new presidential administration? Yes, I think there are some great lessons that we can learn from Yalta. And you can see these lessons very clearly through the writings of the daughters who are writing home to you know, other family members, to their mothers, to husbands, to children, to some extent, to friends. And you can see, especially through Anna Roosevelt's letters, how determined FDR is to build this personal bond with Stalin. He's been able to build this really deep bond with Churchill. This friendship between them really is the bedrock of the special relationship. Because of the success of this, FDR thinks that, as he calls it, touchy-feely politics will win the day in building this bridge with Stalin, again, trying to think about how to keep them part of the international world order after the common enemy has been defeated. And so he's trying really hard to build this personal friendship with Stalin, and sometimes even going so far as to shut Churchill out of this burgeoning friendship as he sees it. But what's really challenging is that he's not taking State Department advisors with him who are experts on the Soviet Union. There were very few experts on the Soviet Union within the State Department at this time. America had not had diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union from 1917 until Roosevelt renews them during his administration. So there's even just a lack of knowledge about what takes place there. And so before the conference begins, the Secretary of State Edward Stettinius writes to George Kennan, who is early in his career, he goes on to become one of the wise men of the Cold War, but at this time he's serving as Avril Harriman's number two at the embassy in Moscow. And Edward Stettinius says, what can you tell us about the personalities that we'll encounter here? You know, what's some good information that we should know about the people that we're meeting with, not Stalin, but everybody beneath him, the career diplomats? Where could we find some points of commonality? And Kennan writes back and says, unfortunately, I can't tell you any of the information that you're looking for. We don't have any of that information. Anything that we know about them is fake. And the real details will only come out in obituaries when they're of no use to anyone anymore. And so this idea of trying to build a personal bond with the Soviet diplomats is really quite useless. Perhaps in the case of Stalin himself, there maybe is some way to build a personal connection but building a friendship through rounds of golf is not going to be a success in the way it might be with another world leader. And so it's this difference in mindset of can you build this personal friendship and can you forge a personal connection and does that have any influence over foreign policy? And unfortunately, even if Stalin really likes you, and I do think he liked FDR and really respected FDR for having such a strong base of support in the United States for so long and overcoming his personal disability and being paralyzed, but people respecting him for the strong leader that he was despite that, that is something that Stalin admired. However, that's not going to change Stalin's outlook on his own foreign policy. And I think, unfortunately, in recent years, we've fallen back into this trap of trying to build a personal bond with the Russian leader. You've seen it in the Bush administration, Obama administration, Trump administration, and unfortunately, it just doesn't work. So after 75 years, I think we should go back and reassess this attempt to build this personal bond and just recognize that it doesn't work in this part of the world in the way that it might in other parts of the world. And so instead of trying to build personal bonds, seek out specific areas where we can collaborate on a mutually beneficial goal, where it is very strategic and targeted. And there are those opportunities to collaborate and to be allies on smaller items, but it's just not going to be the kind of sweeping friendship that you would have between the American president and the British prime minister. 
Wow. I mean, there's lots of lessons. Well, let's hope Biden's listening. I think there's, <laughs> there's lots of lessons there to take from the world we live in today. And another question I've got to ask. Now, as I was reading your book, I was reading that Kathleen was a champion skier and Sarah Churchill was an actress, but also a good writer, like you say. And then Anna had been working with her father for a number of years as well. So what happens to the daughters after the war? Do they continue in any sort of policy work or do they return to their careers? Yes. So the daughters really recognize that this opportunity that they have to be at their father's side, this is the opportunity to fulfill a lifelong dream of being the person who their fathers can rely on implicitly in the most challenging moments. They really have always wanted to be that invaluable person to their fathers from the time they were each a little girl. This is something that they all share. But they also do recognize that while the war has given so many women opportunities to use the skills that they might never have been able to use, that it's a window that will close. And while they are looking forward to the end of the war, of course, they do recognize that the world is going to change and likely they'll be on the outside looking in again when it's all over. And there is some acceptance of this. It's not something that they resent, have to resist the urge to apply our way of looking at the world today and thinking about the role that women should have in politics and foreign policy and see that may not have been how they were thinking at the time. Sarah Churchill was a beautiful writer. She was very involved in the military intelligence aspect of the war. She had been an actress before, and so she does decide that she doesn't want to continue in the family business, I think largely because she wouldn't have thought that she could have. It just wasn't something that would have occurred to her. So she does return to acting. She has a somewhat successful career, even goes on to star in a movie opposite Fred Astaire in 1951 called Royal Wedding. She's very glamorous. But I do think that had she been born even 10 years later, which would have made her a contemporary of Margaret Thatcher, that she really could have been the Churchill that carried on the family business. Her brother Randolph was a great orator, a very bright man, but had a more challenging personality, I'd say. Where Sarah, I do think, really had the skills that it would have taken to succeed her father. And so it's a shame that for all of us that she didn't have that opportunity. Kathleen Harriman, you mentioned, was a champion skier. She was an alternate for what ended up being the canceled 1940 Winter Olympics. She was also an expert equestrian, a crack shot. And these are things that make up a huge part of her life throughout her entire life. And really what built this great friendship between she and her father forged in their shared love of Sun Valley, their ski resort. And so this is always a big part of her life. She does briefly return to her work as a journalist after the war, but she does get married and has three children and really sees her role as a mother as just as exciting and as valuable as her work during the war. And so she is very content in that aspect of her life. But surprisingly, she really never talks about her experience in the Soviet Union in any meaningful way throughout the rest of her life in the post-war period, the beginning of the Cold War. She feels that if she says anything, that she'll either be called too soft on the Soviets or too hard on the Soviets. You can't please anyone. So she just doesn't talk about it. And her children barely even know about her experience there. Anna Roosevelt had been an editor with her husband, the Seattle Post-Intelligencer newspaper before the war. Her husband has had a difficult period, and so they don't go back to that, and they end up divorcing. And Anna does continue to do some work in you know, journalism, and she has a radio show with her mother. She also has three children and is a very wonderful mother. But it's almost like the sense of who she is and who her father is, which has defined her life since she was a little girl, is suddenly ripped away when he dies in April. They no longer have a home in the White House. Their own home has been left to the government to be the presidential library. So this whole sense of your whole world being based on your father being the president for so long. It's this really jarring change where your life is suddenly one day completely different than it was the day before. And I think that's something that's very difficult for her. 
So how did you find out about all of this? What's the story behind the story? Because you talk about how people like Kathleen didn't really mention this to their families. How do you know about what the daughters felt at Yelta? It's one of those moments in life where coincidences all kind of come together in one moment. Things that I didn't realize were related suddenly are. I always loved World War II. I'd always wanted to be a writer since I was a little girl. I loved things like The Sound of Music and The Great Escape and White Christmas and Little House on the Prairie. And so these are just things that I always loved. And I chased my grandfather around at Thanksgiving with a notepad asking him to tell me stories about his experience in the Navy during World War II. I'd spent a lot of time studying Churchill as an undergrad at Harvard and then as a grad student at Cambridge. But after graduating, I did, I think, what many recent grads think of as the smart thing and went to work in finance in New York. Quickly knew that that probably wasn't what I was meant to do in the long run. But in the lobby of my office was a bookstore called Chartwell Booksellers, which is named after Winston Churchill's country home. And the store specialized in books by and about Winston Churchill. So when I'd go down to the lobby to get a coffee, I'd find myself wandering into this bookstore over and over, and I got to know the owner quite well. He introduced me to the International Churchill Society, which also includes members of the Churchill family. And around that time, they were opening the papers of Churchill's daughter, Sarah, to outside researchers for the first time and asked if I was interested in writing an article about them. And I said, sure, I'd love to. It's meant a chance to go back to Cambridge, a way I thought just to stay engaged with history and writing. You know, Maybe I'd find my way back to that in 20 years as a second career or something. But as soon as I went over there and began to read Sarah's letters, I was just fascinated by her life and her experience during the war, which no one has appreciated. And also the sense of you think of the great men of history as these people we put on a pedestal, but to someone, they're just dad. And what would it be like to be their child? And this really special bond that Winston and Sarah had is something that I think has we haven't known about for such a long time because her papers were closed. And so it's finally this chance to see him in a completely different way that's as important as any of the other ways that we see him. His family was so important to him and this bond between he and his daughter was incredibly special and meaningful to both of them, which then made me realize that these other two daughters had also been at Yalta and I'd studied Yalta on many occasions and just really never realized that. So through the Churchill family, I was able to connect with Kathleen Harriman's family. They still had all of her letters and scrapbooks from the war just in a closet in their apartment. Kathleen hadn't really spoken about her wartime experience. And so it was, you know, this discovery of Kathleen and how important she was by going through her letters, which was remarkable. And she is such an engaging and witty writer that it, you feel I was 27 at the time I was reading them. She was 27 the time she was at Yalta. So it just was this really fun aspect of it personally, very meaningful. And then through them, I also connected with Anna Roosevelt's children who are still alive, including her daughter, Ellie, who was 18 at the time of Yalta, has very clear memories of this period, and her mother going to Yalta, supplemented by Anna's letters and a sort of diary that she kept while she was at Yalta, which are at the FDR Presidential Library. So this is this wealth of resources that we didn't know were there, combined with the opportunity to still talk to people who knew what had happened at the time and who knew and loved these people most of all. And so it was really exciting to be at that inflection point and to be able to tell the story in a way that brings these personalities to light and really focuses on the relationships that underpin one of these great geopolitical moments on the precipice between World War and Cold War. And you just see a very personal side to the story in a way that's as important as any of the geopolitics. And is there anything more exciting than that moment when you open the cupboard? and the diaries are there, or you get to speak to someone who remembers this and lived through that period, you really did have unrivaled access. I did, yes. And the, all of the families were just wonderful. So generous with their time, their memories, access to sources. 
And also appreciating the role of the historian that I strive to be as accurate as possible in the telling of history and that they didn't constrain me in any way. All people have challenges. They all have flaws. We all do our best. And it's just one of these things that you just really see the human side of some of these figures that we admire. And you recognize that, you know, they aren't so different from us. And I think that there is a lot of hope and solace that can come from living through challenging times and looking at history and recognizing that we've gotten through it before, not so long ago. And there are people who remember going through it before and that you can still take charge of your destiny as an individual and as a nation and look back at past challenges as a source of hope and inspiration. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on The World Wars and enlightening us about this history. Now tell us, where can people read more about the daughters at Yalta? <laughs> well, you can read about it in the book, The Daughters of Yalta, <laughs> The Churchill's, Roosevelt's, and Harriman's, A Story of Love and War, available at your favorite bookstore or online, ebook, audiobook, all of the above. You can also visit my website, katherinegracecats.com, where I have some extra tidbits that I couldn't fit in the book, some fun extra information. So if that is something that interests you, please check it out or connect with me on Twitter or Instagram or tune into one of these wonderful virtual conversations. It's you know, certainly not how I expected to send my first book into the world, but the positive aspect of this is that I've been able to meet so many more people around the world than I would have otherwise. And it's just been wonderful hearing your stories and also even hearing from readers who have family connections to this story and learning about your own histories as well. So it's been great fun to connect with people in all different ways in all different parts of the world. Yeah, get in touch if you've got your own personal histories that link into this. And also, buy the book. I've read it. It is fantastic. We've got a link in the bio. And Catherine, you're always welcome on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.